This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, you're listening to Good Things, the show where we talk to good people who are doing good things. I'm Dashran Johan. Ivy Josia is a prominent women's rights activist. She was integral in helping establish the Women's Aid Organization all those years ago. She's been a human rights defender for many decades and have been involved in various protests and demonstrations throughout the years, including the many Bursay rallies. Welcome to the show, Ivy. Hi, Dashan. Thank you very much. You begin your journey in activism as someone championing women's rights. Um, When exactly did you uh, start this journey? Yeah, thank you for the question, because... I think I have to attribute my sense of activism going back to my school days that seed was planted where we were made aware of our social responsibility, that we have to be civic conscious. Um, We had nuns, uh, particularly Sister Daniel, who was constantly challenging us to think about our society, about our community, the school itself encouraged, um, you know, like everybody's day when everyone opened all the classrooms. We brought up, we brought potluck and it was everybody's day. We could go into different classrooms. Right. Uh, even uh, a selection of prefects was done in a very democratic way. We had to campaign. We had to vote because they all, the school was already, Convent Bukinana's CBN was already inculcating that it's important to vote. But one particular incident stood out where I became conscious about the country, you know, mm-hmm. and about how the country is going. It was in 1973 when, at that time, the government or the Ministry of Education introduced Bajukurongs for Malay girls. And Malay girls were encouraged to wear the Bajukurong on Friday. Right. So I was in Form 5 at that time. I was, in fact, uh, I was retaining, you know, I was repeating my form five. And five science one, where uh, it was a very bright class, uh, you know, it had Ambiga in that class and we were becoming fast friends. Right. Um, her class decided, let's be, keep solidarity with our Malay uh, schoolmates. Let's all wear a bajukurong on a Friday. So the students in five science one, what they did was, they begged, borrowed, I mean, some, some may, may have even sewn a bajukurong. And on a Friday, they turned up in school, the whole class in bajukurong. And you, you, and I was so happy to see that. I mm-hmm. said, oh, this is fantastic. I really wish I belonged to Five Size One, too. <laughs> but alas, the headmistress at that time, it was not a nun. Um, she was extremely angry. She was very disappointed. She hauled in the five science one leaders. And I was told later that she said that the Baju Korong is a Muslim attire. Um, You're insulting the religion. Why are you doing this? You're sending out the wrong message. And we were shocked, right? I remember meeting Ambiga in the tuck shop and asked her what went went on. And she told me this. Nothing, but why is it a Muslim attire? It's just, isn't it like a national costume? I, I right. don't remember the conversation, but all the details of the conversation, what stood out was Ambika. She was already wise at the age of 17 already. You know, she was saying, you know, Ivy, where does it say that a Bajukurong is Muslim? You know, look at it now. In 2022, we all wear the Bajukurong. There's right. absolutely no dispute. But that, I think, was the seed, the start of being socially conscious. 
Do you remember what year this was? 1973. Right. Um, I also read another story, um, Ivy, that your first encounter with this whole idea of domestic violence was when you were a very young girl and you heard the neighbor wife screaming. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, tell me about this. <laughs> right. So I was already socially conscious. I, I was already told by the teachers, I was already taught by the nuns that we must get involved, right? right. We must try and change and, and make a better community. So one, I mean, several evenings at nights, especially, we could hear my neighbors screaming, you know, crying, especially in, in the middle of the night. It could be like 12 o'clock, one o'clock. Right. That's when the husband comes back home. And we couldn't stand it. I mean, I was telling mother, what we must do something about this. Like, this is terrible. She's obviously being beaten. Because I, I could hear her cry, don't, you know, she, she calls her husband Atan. You know, Atan means mm, husband. Yeah. And I remember my mother was also perturbed. And what she did was to go to the kitchen and start banging the pots, dropping the pots, you know, trying to make noise at one o'clock in the morning. A lot of noise in this, in, in our home, because the walls are very thin, right? I mean, right. they're low-cost flats and brick fields. And so he stopped then. And I think it was our message to sh- to the neighbor to, to tell him, you know, we know something is going on. We don't like it. Um, I don't think we had the courage to go and knock on the door and say, what are you doing? Right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, we're afraid of that. And so that started me thinking about, oh, marriage, violence, you know, and um, started wondering, I started wondering about what is marriage all about when you can't free yourself from violence? Right. So at that time, I was a very impressionable age. I was already being tutored by my mother to say that I must be married with at least two children. They were already arranging marriages for me. So there was a lot of convergence of ideas, a lot of things happening to me as a young person, together with the influence of um, school, the neighbors, my, my parents, the family pressure, and me every afternoon reading Reader's Digest and learning about what's happening in America, about student rights and so on. You know, you, you're right. kind of like, you're getting all these ideas, right? And wondering what to do with right. it until you go into university and you're still wondering, you're not getting anything in university. You, you went, When I went into university, I, I went in there in 1976 and I was expecting a revolution because I've been reading about, you know, campus activism in America, you know, because of my Reader's Digest, right? Right. It was happening. It was all quiet. Everything was kind of quiet in campus. And I think really is after I graduated in 1981, when again, you know, uh, Ambiga at that time also had graduated. She had returned from overseas. I had graduated from University of Malaya. And we went to our first meeting in women's aid organization at the shelter. That was definitely a turning point. Talk to me about that because women's aid already had the shelter at that point, but you are still regarded as you know one of the pioneers in setting up a women's aid organization or at least taking it to the next level. What was that experience like? Well, definitely the early members, the mm-hmm. initial members were, were known as pioneer volunteers or members. Because when the shelter opened, it was only a couple, few months opened. And at that time, Ambika was a lawyer and she was saying, hey, Ivy, you know, there's this women's aid organization. They're looking for volunteers. I'm going to go and find out as a lawyer. I want to, I want to volunteer. And remember, we were already schoolmates. We already had a sense that we must come out of school. We must come out of university and we must volunteer our time. We must try and make the world a better place. 
So we went for the first meeting. I remember Abiga driving me there because I didn't have a license then. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> the meeting was so amazing, Darshan. It was just, a, you know, it was in a whole, it was a small house, you know, in, uh, in Pataling Jaya. Uh, it was very crowded. Everybody was sitting on the floor, sitting on the sofa. It was hot. Um, and everybody was talking at the same time, you know, and, and, the, and the big hot topic was um, what is domestic violence? Why do men beat their, beat their women? Why do men beat their wives? I remember in the room besides Ambiga, there was No Farida, Rashida Abdullah, you right. know, all these names who are, you know, who mean, you know, who are very important mm-hmm. uh, women in the women's movement. People were saying things like, oh, it must be because he's drunk or it must be poor men. It must be because, you know, the other issues. And there was one voice in that room. And that was our first social worker at Women's Aid Organization. Her name is Simran Gill. And I'll always right. will be grateful for what Simran Gill taught us and taught me. And she said, no, it's nothing to do with poverty or alcohol. It's got to do with power. The man has power in our family. The mm-hmm. man has power in society. And we first learned the word patriarchy. And we first learned the word feminism. <laughs> and, uh, and we're like, oh, feminism. And they all, don't they hate men? You know, because I didn't get all of this in university. Right. There were no gender studies in university. So, yeah, so that was a start. Right. Many, many uh, sessions at Women's Aid, having lunch with Simran, having tea, having dinner. We were inseparable. We were, we kept meeting up every evening at the shelter. We were volunteering. We organized the first fun fair, the jumble sale. Uh, you know, to raise money. And when we were doing things together, trying to set up, and the shelter was already set up, but of course we had to form committees. We had a gardening committee, we had the house group, we had the food committee, we had the fundraising committee. And I was involved in almost every committee. I was a teacher. My mother thought when I became a teacher, I would, you know, go to go and teach, come back in the afternoons and look after my children, right? Because teacher is a perfect job if you're going to be a wife, Right. <laughs> I was like, as soon as school is over, I was taking a taxi to the shelter and I, I, was, I would spend hours at the shelter hanging out with the social workers. And I, I just, I just, I really felt at home. Mm-hmm. All the answers were there. You know, is my destiny supposed to be a wife, a mother, a daughter? Is, is you know, are there other options? Since you were in high school and then university, you wanted to be involved in the activism scene, especially women's rights activism. Um, so your mom, your mom thought, okay, you're going to be this teacher and then, okay, that's, that's, that's it. But clearly, like you said, you didn't. Um, you also wanted to be active in the, in the women's rights um, um, scene and all of that. Yeah. How did your parents react to you? Because, of course, naturally, um, it's, it's not just about sitting, sitting in a shelter and talking, right? You guys are um, mobilizing, uh, organizing, you know, all right. of that came as well. Um, and at times, you all have to go directly against the state. Uh, your mom, what is, how did she react when you told her you're going to do all of this? Yeah, well, she wasn't very happy about it, for sure. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, my mother thought, my God, is false. You know, all her chances to get married because she's talking about how men are, can be violent, you know. And initial years, you know, the, the women who out of women's aid organization, the ones who spoke up, you know, because I was at that time, I became the secretary, the president, and you name it, I held every, almost every post 
Um, you know, we were being quoted in the papers. We were protesting for the Domestic Violence Act. We were lobbying for the act. Um, so she was not at all happy about it. She she felt that my involvement with Women's Aid Organization is the reason why I'm so reluctant to get married. And I kept saying, no, I mean, it's a choice. Marriage is a choice. It's, mm-hmm. it's not you, 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 being single. Is, it's not a shame. And it was, it was like a it was almost like a principal point for me that being single is not a shameful status. I think I want to also add that although she was very, very um, discouraging in the beginning, one week before she passed away, one week before she passed away, she called me, we talked, we, we used to talk to each other every day, and she called me and said how proud she is of me. That must have been really special. Very special, very mm-hmm. special, and it was very, very special. So, how proud she is of me, how people say I've done such an amazing work, and how proud she is of me. And about a week later, she passed away. So, so that was good, right? That was so special and so mm-hmm. loving. And that's my mother, too, my mother and her unconditional love. Anyway, so Women's Aid became very much part of my life. And Mm -hmm. also the arts also became very much part of my life because, again, you know, um, dancing on stage was something that was frowned upon by the Salonis community. You don't dance on stage. You know, what is wrong with you? But I wanted to dance all my life. I wanted to dance. So I joined the dance group in the university and I learned to dance. And then I graduated and I became a dancer, you know, in um, with Marion de Cruz and dancers. And Five Arts Center, the group that, you know, that, that I belong to now, mm-hmm. was also very political in the way they were staging their performances. You know, it was very centered to that. We are Malaysian-centered. We are uh, Asian-centered. We are not going to do uh, Sound of Music, you know. We're not going to right. do plays. And we, if we did it, we're going to make it into an Asian thing, right, you know. Uh, where is what's our what is our culture? What is our history? So even Five Arts Center was feeding me this with this political consciousness, mm. you know that that we are different. So my involvement with you know Women's Aid, Five Arts Center, that's it. You know my, and I'm still involved with both this organization and especially involved, still very much involved with the Five Arts Center, and we definitely, you know, um, dance to a different drum beat. Over the years, you've had many encounters with the police and authorities and and all of that. Do you remember your first encounter with the police? What was that experience like? Fear. Hmm. I was frightened of the police. My first encounter with the police was when other NGOs, especially NGOs working on civil and political rights, were asking WAO to sign on to memorandums that it was not about women's rights. Right. So I, I, we were very narrow. WAO in the initial years, we were only looking at women's rights. We would not talk about, for example, the Bakun Dam. Mm. You know, why are they building a dam? We will not talk about corruption, you know. And when other groups were trying to get us to sign on and be part of the larger human rights community, that larger civil society, I was kind of reluctant um, can we actually speak up about, you know, uh, development, the you know corruption? Um, and I remember again being in another meeting, and this time the meeting was held in Awam, the All Women Action Society in Malaysia. Right. We very often talk about the Domestic Violence Act, and at that time we were lobbying for the act. 
and you know, and we were, we were, and that space was a very honest space. And we'll talk about our fears. You know, what if they shut down the shelter? If we if we go against the the state authority, if we are critical of the police, what if they shut down the shelter? Surely the shelter is the most important thing. We must try and keep it open. Right. And Irene Xavier. And you remember Irene Xavier, she's, mm-hmm. she's an amazing woman. She was, you know, arrested under Operation Lalang. She, you know, she was um, arrested under the, the terrible law under the ISA, right. under the Internal Security Act. She then looked at the whole group and said, if we fear the police of some kind of action they're going to take, some strong action they're going to take against us, if we are fearful of the police, we are also like battered women. We don't may not have a husband or a boyfriend or someone... On, beating us up, but we're allowing for the police to beat us up mentally. And oh my God, Dashin, the penny dropped. The penny dropped immediately for me. What am I, why am I behaving like this? Why am I feeling fearful? How, what legitimacy do I have to, in telling a woman, you know, encouraging a woman to say, leave your violent home life. There's a safe space for you. You have a right to be free of violence. Whereas I am afraid that the police may shut this down. On the show with me today is Ivy Josia. She's a women's rights activist. After the break, I ask her about her experience putting together Malaysia's first women's tribunal. We'll be back with more on Good Things, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Good Things, the show where we talk to good people who are doing good things. I'm Dashan Johan and my guest on today's show is Ivy Josia. She's a women's rights activist. So Ivy, we've had a long conversation about a year ago, I believe, about Bursate 2.0. And uh, Nalini Elumalai was joined us in that conversation. And during Bursate 2.0, you were overseas um, attending and also helping coordinate um, Bursate protests over there. Um, later, once you were back in Malaysia, you were heavy, more heavily involved in subsequent Bursate rallies as well. Um, what was it like trying to organize a rally like Bursay, um, because this we haven't ha- we haven't seen a movement of that magnitude. We didn't see it prior to Bursay, and we haven't seen it after Bursay. What was it like? Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people came came on the streets, and you were on the front line. It was very empowering, actually. For Bursay two point zero, I wasn't I wasn't working overseas. I happened to be overseas right. attending UN meeting, and so I was there. And I joined the New York Malaysians or Malaysians living in New York and in their protests. And that was seamless. It was our protest began when the protests in, in Kuala Lumpur ended. Right. Uh, and they were, you know, when it was, it was, a, it was mayhem, right? I mean, it was, mm-hmm. it was a chaos because they were arrested, Ambika, Maria and all of them. And our protest in New York was seamless. We, you know, the, we just marched down the streets. We went to the, uh, Malaysian High Commission, and it was shut. It was on a Sunday. So the following year, when Bursay 3.0 was organized, mm-hmm. I very quickly volunteered at the Bursay office. So 3.0, 4, and 5, I was quite heavily involved. Very empowering experience. Seeing Malaysians come out in the hundreds, in the thousands, you know, unafraid. You felt a surge of pride you you felt fearsome. You felt so so powerful. Looking at all the the Malaysians, uh, seeing the sea of yellow. There was one time when the the government declared that you are not supposed to wear the t-shirt. That you'll be fined or you'll be arrested. You right. And I remember coming out of the hotel room, 
uh, in early hours of the morning because the, of course the protest was it was that that was a year where we were going to do a 24-hour protest, right? An overnight mm-hmm. protest that was per se 4.0. That idea came from Maria Chin, who who initially when she said we are going to stay there, we're going to stay overnight. We all looked at her, huh? You sure? Because it's, it's not going to be dangerous. She said, no, we must show we are resolute. I remember the word resolute. And I was very inspired by that word. And coming out there in the morning, you see all these militias wearing the T-shirt. They could be bothered. Everybody's wearing a yellow T-shirt. And how can you feel any fear? How can you feel like, oh, dear, we're not going to pull this off? And you see Malaysians out there doing everything, especially Versailles 4.0, because it was an overnighter. Malaysians came. They created all kinds of activities. I was in charge of the different stages and we couldn't even move the performers from one stage to the other stage because we could not even walk. When I was staying in a hotel and to walk to the stage, which should have been a five minute walk, mm-hmm. would take me about 25 minutes because we were, you know, there was such a crowd. We were, you know, we were like shoulder to shoulder. Thank God there was no COVID at that time. <laughs> and you know, we, we would get on the stage and people would we create performances on the streets uh, the people created camps early out when we woke up in the morning. I saw people cleaning up. Um, it was amazing, right? Everybody was doing their bit. It was an amazing experience. I really feel very privileged. I was very lucky to be, you know, involved at a time and a place when we had that, that energy, that, that, that the charisma of, of their leaders, whether it's Maria Chen, Ambika, and all of them, you know, again, incidentally, women leaders. I never ever thought in my dreams, in my life, that I would be involved and be part of a huge movement that when you would be on stage and looked at hundreds and thousands of people, you know, um, just protesting. Because the protests that I was involved in the early years were usually very small. You know, we would, without fail, on International Women's Day, we would organize a march, you know, uh, through the streets of Kuala Lumpur. And there would be like maybe what, 200 people. Mm-hmm. In 1996, we, women's groups uh, protested that the government had not implemented the Domestic Violence Act. 30 people. And even at that time, when we had 30 people, we had you know, a lawyer on standby. You know, Sivarasa was on standby, and just in case we got arrested. Right. And then something else also happened in 1996 that actually made me very, very conscious of the politics of this country. And that was um, in 1996, there was, a, there was the Asia-Pacific Coalition for East Timor, EPSET 2, was being held. There was a conference being held in Kuala Lumpur. I went to the conference. The government was already saying that the SWARAM and the, and the human rights group mustn't organize this conference because it was a conference to, to talk about how Indonesia had invaded East Timor um, and the East Timorese were trying to get freedom from Indonesia, right? Because there was, you know, there was 24 years at that time. It was almost 24 years of uh, Indonesian o- occupation of East Timor. So I was already going into civil and political rights. I had friends in Swaram. So when I was at this conference, that was a time when uh, Amno Youth they basically broke down the conference hall. We were in a hotel in uh, somewhere in Chowkit Road, and they broke down the doors. I remember Prem, Premish from uh, Malaysia Kini was there, uh, Sivarasa, Dr. Jomo Sundram, Dr. Said Hussein Ali. Uh, all of us were there, and we were all were arrested for 
because we were causing chaos. Because when the Amno youth broke down the doors and started shouting, uh, shouting at us and causing chaos, um, the police then had a legitimate right to come in and say, hey, this conference is now chaotic. That was the first time I was arrested. That was the first time I spent one night in, in a cell. And that experience also made me very conscious about the importance of an organization like women's aid organization or women's groups. We can't just be looking at women's rights. We need to be conscious about the state authority. We need to be conscious about what's happening in ASEAN. You know, uh, I remember very sadly at that time when I was arrested, when the executive director of women's aid organizations was arrested, uh, <laughs> women's aid organization again was like, oh dear, our ED has been arrested. Should we put out a statement to say that she was there on her own time? Because I was actually there because, you know, I was, I was involved. My friends who were organizing the press uh, on this East Timor EPSET conference, they were good friends of mine. And they were trying to, they were debating whether they should put out a press release to say that, that women say it's got nothing to do with this conference. And fortunately, at that time, the, the uh, very wise exco member, uh, her name is Tan Seok Chu, who said, no, we must always support our members in whatever activity they do, especially if they are arrested. If they are arrested, we need to send our lawyers to see what's happening, you know? Um, and so, you know, we, I got the support of WAO too. But, you know, it was all a awakening movement, right? Upset, the arrest of upset was, I got to tell you the story. Right. So 12 women were arrested and I can't remember how many men, I just remember 12 women. So the men were taken to a different, uh, they were they were in Dang Wangi's cell in the detention center in Wang, Dang Wangi. Right. And the six, the 12 girls, were, we were taken to another police station. And I was being arrested and thinking, surely I have the right to make a phone call, right? And guess what? No phone call. So I arrived, we all arrive at the police station and we're going, can I can I make a phone call? No, you can't make a phone call. You they you go into the cell and they take away your glasses. And I, I'm blind as a bat. You take away my glasses, everything is sort of vague, right? Yeah. They take away your glasses in case you injure yourself. However, when I was arrested in the hotel and we were, when we came down from the hotel, we were the whole conference was in the hotel. They came down and we as we were getting on getting to the onto the Black Maria. When we came down, we saw a lot of people already had gathered. Already people were gathered around and they were all were clapping because immediately word was out that Malaysian activists were being arrested. The East Timorese uh, foreign participants were being also arrested and, and deported. So I got onto the Black Maria and guess what? I did not have a handphone at that time. So the only okay. number I remembered was Ambika's phone number. Right. And I borrowed a handphone from Elizabeth Wong and called up Ambika and saying, I'm in a black barrier. I'm being arrested. Please do something about this. And then I remember going into the cell and then we were told that, um, that we're going to remain here because it was a, we were arrested on a Saturday and uh we were told by the uh, by the woman in charge of the cell, or oh, you'll probably be taking the magistrate on Tuesday because I think it was Deepa Valley on Sunday, so Monday is a holiday, and therefore you'll be only taken to the magistrate on Tuesday. So we were, you no, know, we were getting ready. We were settling down. So okay, this is going to be our 
home for three nights. Of course, six girls in each cell, we all held hands, we prayed. I remember thinking to myself, oh my God, am I going to put people put under the ISA because the ISA was still alive and well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Mahade was the prime minister then. You know, who's to know? Maybe we'll all be sent to, you know, to come on thing. And I was thinking, okay, never mind. I'll do my master's. I will, you know, exercise. I'll get healthy. You know, get preparing ourselves mentally for the mm-hmm. worst. We woke up in the morning and I remember being very thirsty. So there was a, a bag of black coffee. And I quickly drank the coffee, quickly ate the um a sticky bun. It was awful. And I put the coffee bag and immediately like hundreds of ants came, you know, surrounding the ants. Then I heard Irene Xavier in the other cell. And she said, Ivy, can you hear me? I said, yeah, Irene, we are protesting. We are going, we are going to go on a fast. We're not going to eat anything until then when they take us to the magistrate. And I'm like sheepishly looking at my, (laughs) (laughs) Irene, we will not have lunch then. So again, you see what I mean? I, I was always so lucky to be surrounded by activists. So mm-hmm. immediately we are in the cell and we're saying, we're not going to eat until you send us to a magistrate because they're already telling us we can only see the, see the magistrate on Tuesday. And by right, we later on found out that we can, you can see the magistrate. The police can call the magistrates even on a weekend because magistrates are on a call. Sunday itself, we were asked to get back into the into, into the into the Black Maria and taken back to the Dangwangi police station because we're going to see the magistrate. And when we arrived at the Dangwangi police station, Darshan, again, at least a hundred people were outside the Dangwangi police station giving us support. And again, you know, in times when you feel you're going to be left alone, you're going to be forgotten, there are always people out there for support. And we went to the we went to the police station and we were all sitting in a big, we sat in a very large room and the magistrate was there. At some point, he did look at us and say, do you all need any uh, anything? And then I said, I want my glasses. And somebody else said, I would like my medicine because, you know, I, I'm asthmatic. And then the, the magistrate said, well, I'm giving the investigating officer four days of um, remand. That means the police can hold us for another four nights. I remember grabbing the phone of my the lawyer who was there at that time, uh, prevailing, and, and called my mother. This time I figured I must call my mother, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and I immediately remember telling my mother, "Ma, it's not my fault. I didn't do anything wrong." Anyway, so the <laughs> the magistrate leaves, and the, the I.O. looks at all of us, and we're looking at him, and he goes, "He said I can hold you for four nights, four days, but you know what? I'm going to let you go. It's okay." So we all sat there looking at him. You know, we're not going to thank him for sure. We're stunned. And I remember one woman got up. We all were sitting on the floor. We got up and she was an Australian journalist who was also arrested at the at the hotel, who was already, when we were in the Black Maria, she, was, she had a handful, of course. She was already telling her story. She was already calling Australia and she was giving her report, you know, via a handful. She got up and said, so you're saying that we are free to go now? I said, yes. Can I have an interview with you, sir? Amazing, right? Upset arrest is an important arrest because that was when we then when activists then challenged the court to say that all the, the protocols were in place. You should have you, you should be allowed to see a lawyer. Mm-hmm. You should be allowed a phone call. You cannot be remanded just for the sake of being remanded. You know, you must show proof. Fast forwarding to reason times. Um, you recently put together alongside um, other activists um, uh, in, the, in the scene, you all put together um, the first ever women's tribunal in Malaysia. Right. What, it was something very significant. 
um, talk to me about the idea behind Women's Tribunal and the significance of it. So, you know, every year, uh, ever since my retirement from Women's Aid Organization, you know, I'm no longer the executive director, but I still want to be involved in the women's movement. I still want to be active in trying to bring, bring about reform uh, in, um, in small ways. And so I woke up thinking, now, what shall we do this year? We had already gone through government change. You know, I, I noticed that women's groups were now working with the uh, backdoor government, we were very skeptical whether the, the backdoor government will actually give us, you know, um, our, you know, will deliver in the promises. But anyway, that was my personal, that was my personal issue. I do right. the women's groups will work with everybody and anybody. We will work with any state authority. We we'll always will have critical engagement. But on a personal basis, I was kind of skeptical that, that you know, that another memorandum, another press statement is going to do the trick. So I just basically asked the group, the, the WhatsApp group you know, of women activists, mm-hmm. let's do something different. Let's hold a women's tribunal. Let's get women testifying because we need to bring the reality of women's life, real life stories, and let the women speak their truth. Right. Everybody got excited about it. They said, yes, let's do it, right? And it took a lot of organizing. So 14 women's groups, the Joint Action Group for Gender Equality and, uh, and Gender consultancy they with our 14 women's groups and we formed immediately different committees the fundraising committee the the witness committee the security committee the technical committee because it's all going to be online because of covid this is the first women's tribunal online and i had already witnessed in my life during my activism i mean in the 80s and 90s i've seen tribunals overseas where women would come and testify in front of the un will testify in front of you know forums in front of um, of uh, you know judges because women's the global women's women created their own court and i wanted to create our own court mm-hmm. so we, i was very lucky because i had great co-conveners i was known as the convener we had i had mira samandar and vashla naidu and the three of us just pulled it off. Again, what is important here is not so much, uh, I don't want to give the impression it was all about us. We were organizing it. We were so fantastic. Really, at the end of the day, it was the 26 women witnesses. The witnesses that came forward, the 26 of them who said, I am going to speak to Malaysia. I am going to speak online. And mind you, because it was an online tribunal, Activists and friends from all over the world, especially in the ASEAN region or Asia Pacific region, all right. joined and watched it. And they told us the stories, and the stories they told us were of terrible violations, right? Mm-hmm. The transgender woman, the sex worker, the hospital union worker, the, the woman who's suffering from sexual harassment, the woman who's been trolled because she went against the government, she was critical of the government. You know, um, all these women or mothers who were being deprived of citizenship rights, of course, the, you know, the, the mothers who were married to, to um, had foreign spouses. All these women, one by one, told stories about their violations that they faced. There was not a dry year in the room, even though it was online. Of course, we, we, we had a space where the Zoom facility was in a particular space and there were about 15 of us in that space. Right. And these testimonies informed the judges. Again, we selected our three judges, Shanti Diarium, 
Zaina Anwar, Nadia Maliana. We wanted a young person also. Uh, you know, we wanted to be inclusive and representative. They listened carefully. We had a team of academics, a team of lawyers who were who gave advocacy statements, and together, because of the testimonies, were able to come up with findings and judgments. And basically, you know, these findings and judgments is another memorandum. It's another another document that says, "Listen, government of Malaysia, listen very carefully. These are your citizens." These are women living in Malaysia, not necessarily citizens, some are non-citizens, right. who are suffering deep violations, who are suffering discrimination. And this is what we must do to correct the situation. So now we have this document. We're calling them findings and recommendations, and they are they are still being edited and they're and being translated to Bahasa Malaysia, and they'll be sent to the government. And um, already the, the deputy minister in charge of law in the Prime Minister's Department did give a pledge that she will make sure that, um, you know, at, uh, that she'll make sure that the stalking law would be passed. So we're getting, you know, pledges from the present government, but we're used to pledges, right? We're used to pledges. So we just have to keep advocating and, you know, and making sure that the 26 women who had the courage to share their stories and they were sharing their stories not to improve their, their own lives. They were sharing their stories so that all women living in Malaysia, their lives can be improved, their lives can be better. And yeah. our work as activists, as women's rights activists, as feminists, is to keep continuing their work. As we wrap it up, I want to ask you, right, throughout the years, um, like we've talked about um, on the show, you know, if we are talking about arrests, we are talking about um, situations that are chaotic. We're talking about tear gases and water cannons and all of those things. You have experienced it all. Uh, thankfully, uh, except ISA, you have experienced the whole spectrum of oh, things. I don't want to experience <laughs> Yes, yes. How do you, throughout all of that, right, how do you find the courage to keep doing what you're doing and why do you keep doing it year after year after year? I mean, it just goes back to how I was brought up, right? I mean, mm. my mother, who had a, who didn't approve of my, initially did not approve of my activism, right? Because mm-hmm. it's just a way of, you know, a married life, uh, was also a person who was always helping the community. People would come to her and, you know, with all their problems, you know, she would stand up for, you know, people who were unfair. Right. My school, who, who instilled in me a sense of that you must always try and make everybody's lives better by making everybody's life better your lives becomes improved um perhaps it's my christian faith I, i'm you know i i i think it's just all the influences in my early life mm-hmm. you see something you do something you see something wrong you try and correct it if you Absolutely. see injustice you seek justice that's always been part of my i want to say dna and I've always been very lucky to be surrounded by people who think this way too. This is not a lone fight for heaven's sakes. It's the women's movement. It is the human rights movement. It is the civil society movement of, in Malaysia, right? And Darshan, I will, you know, I will not want to exist and live if I stop being angry. You must right. always feel angry. Anger is good. It's righteous anger, right? So I hope I'll always be angry enough to do something 
On that note, thank you so much for speaking with me today, Ivy. That was Ivy Josia. She's a women's rights activist. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can check out the podcast on the BFM at bfm.my or pretty much wherever you get your podcast from. I'm Dashran Johan and this has been Good Things, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.